0: Romans chapter 1 and the 17th verse. For a few minutes this afternoon, let us consider this second verse of the two-verse summary of Paul's purpose and description of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The first verse we would easily understand as Paul saying, I cannot wait to get to Rome to preach to you believers there. For the gospel that I carry has the wonderful news and the joyful information and the glad tidings of God's power in saving believers through Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom and power of God, no matter whether they be Jews or Gentiles. The second verse goes on to say that gospel also contains a revelation to us of how God puts his righteousness on sinners. And that good news is able to be enjoyed from one man who has faith in that message to another who has faith in that message because even the Old Testament tells us that God's elect who are known as the just shall live by faith. That's what the second verse says. Let's sing. I know I already said that once. I'm short in my repertoire. I wish we didn't have to undo, but let's not undo so much this time. Let's just look at these words in their positive sense. I hope that you'll remember the way in which I introduced verse 16, because that introduction applies to this passage as well. The soundbite they take from verse 16 is, the gospel is the power of God. I hope I made crystal clear that the only sense in which the gospel is the power of God is to believers in the way that they receive it and understand it, because the gospel is good news of God's power in Jesus Christ to save His elect. The gospel itself has no power. The gospel is news of the power. The power is in Christ. The power is in God. And the gospel just reveals it to us, tells us about it, provides an education in how we were saved and what we can do to please Him who has saved us. That's what it means. And when you go to 1 Corinthians 1, it's very plainly laid out that way. When the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness or the preaching of Christ crucified to the Jews is a stumbling block, is the gospel itself intrinsically, literally, in actuality, foolishness? Is it a stumbling block? No. No. It's how it's received by unbelievers. And it's in that same way that it's the power of God. Because believers hear the message and it's not intrinsically powerful. It's not literally powerful or in actuality powerful. It's just a message of God's power. I hope I made that crystal clear. That is the truth of the New Testament about the Gospel. Amen. We come to the 17th verse. For therein, Therein, wherein, what in, in what? In the Gospel. We have coordinating conjunctions. I know you probably didn't like English any more than I did. I wish I could go back and take English again, realizing how much I love this piece of English literature and that I could use some better foundation in English to appreciate this piece of English literature that we call our Bible. But those little coordinating conjunctions of four, we have one that starts verse 15. Verse sixteen and one that starts seventeen and one that starts eighteen because these thoughts are to be kept close together. Verse sixteen is connected to verse fifteen because Paul has said, "So as much as in me is," meaning, our sense, I can't wait to get to Rome to preach to you Roman believers. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you there at Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What I want to bring to you Romans is so good. And there's done a bit of shame in me. I don't care if I run into a Greek, someone from Caesar's palace. I don't care if I run into the wise or the unwise. I have a great message to bring to you Roman believers. And I'm going to get you established further in the truth of the gospel. That's what he's saying. And so he goes on to describe the good news that I have is God's power in saving sinners through Jesus Christ. Then, verse 17, for... Therein, I'm not ashamed of this message, because look what this message contains. For in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. How can a man be righteous with God? This is Paul's answering the question in the 17th verse. It's a question asked by Job. It's a question asked by David in Psalm 130, where he knew the answer and he knew God knew the answer. That no man could be just before God unless there was a Savior and a substitute provided. O Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? No one can stand before God. Job prayed for a daysman that could put one hand on God and one ta- hand on him. That's an arbitrator. That's a mediator. That's an intercessor. That's a high priest. Every one of us need one of those because we're all going to stand before God. One nanosecond after your spirit leaves your body, your spirit will be in the presence of a holy, terrible Creator God. And you will want an intercessor, a mediator, or an arbitrator that can stand between you and God and deliver you from His pure justice and pure wrath. And we have one. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and there is no other. He is the man, Christ Jesus, made in our nature with flesh and blood like us and endured all the temptations that we endure in life yet without sin. So he is able to be a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. God is righteous. And the words righteousness of God can refer to it. Sometimes the words righteousness of God can just refer to His character trait as being perfectly righteous. Always doing what is right as defined by God's Word and His own character. For instance, chapter 3 uses it that way. In verse 5 it says, If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Can we argue against the fact that even when we sin, we commend the righteousness of God so that God is always just when he condemns sinners? That's an argument in chapter 3 that we're going to get to, but I, I hope I've said enough for you to understand that. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Are you kidding? If someone doesn't believe God's Word, and if someone doesn't obey God's Word, it doesn't alter God's Word. It is still true, and he is able to then judge that man, and he's able to justify all of his sayings by condemning a man for his sins against his Word. In chapter 3 and verse 5, righteousness of God is referring to God's intrinsic, personal Character trait of righteousness. God is righteous. All his works are perfect. Just and true is he. There's not a single bit of sin in our God. He is righteous. But that's not how the word's being used here in chapter 1 and verse 17. Because 3.5 is an exception to how that word is used in the epistle to the Romans. The righteousness of God can also describe the righteousness that we need to be accepted in the presence of God the righteousness that is pleasing to God, the righteousness that satisfies God. Then it's called the righteousness of God in that we are made righteous in a way acceptable to God, and that's the way it is used right here. That is the theme of the first 11 chapters. Look at chapter 3 and verse 21 instead of verse 5. Romans 3:21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Notice these words. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. It's only coming into view. It's being witnessed by the gospel. It's not being conveyed by the gospel. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, same thought. The righteousness that we need to be acceptable in God's sight. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Now notice in this verse you can see that it is the righteousness of God that is unto us, and it is upon us, and it's tied in with our believing. When a person believes, he lays hold of that righteousness that has been put upon him by the justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to this text and take it apart phrase by phrase, but not right now, or we'll never get back to 17. Right now I just want to show you what the words mean, the righteousness of God. God is righteous, so sometimes the words mean his character trait of righteousness. Sometimes the word mean, word means, their phrase means what we need put on us so that we are acceptable before God. And you can see in 21 and 22 that it's plainly stating that because it is the righteousness of God unto all and upon all them that believe. A man that believes the gospel shows that he was ordained before the foundation of the world to be a child of God. Acts 13, 48. A man that believes the gospel that has the faith that's described here in verses 21 and 22 was justified by the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross so that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is unto and upon him. And a man that believes has been born again by the Holy Spirit so that he has a holy new nature inside him. So when it introduces the subject of our faith upon everyone that believeth in this 22nd verse... It's not setting forth any condition. It's setting forth a description. The evidence that a man has that righteousness upon him starts with the evidence of faith. Is faith by itself much evidence? The devils believe and tremble. And we are supposed to add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, and so forth as second... Peter chapter 1 describes, but let's get back to verse 17. What I want you to be thinking about is exactly what is Paul saying in verse 17. Exactly what he's saying is, this gospel that I'm bringing, that I am not ashamed of, that I'm going to preach to you believers in Rome, it tells us how God's righteousness gets on us. Do you know how much you need that in verse 17? Because I'm going to take you and me to hell next Sunday. In verses 18 through 32. We fit verses 18 through 32. We are without excuse. But verse 17 comes before verses 18 through 32. And it's wonderful to know that. The reason, you say, well, if Paul knew they were all God's elect, why does he have to go through verses 18 through 32, and then all of chapter 2, and then the first 19 verses of chapter 3, proving that all Jews and Gentiles are condemned before God? because they were trying to find a way out of it, that they didn't need the full redemption of Jesus Christ, but the law of Moses was enough. And if they all hadn't committed such terrible things as sodomy, and therefore they would be accepted in the sight of God, oh, the Lord's going to get us all. But we have verse 17 in front of it. Notice that verse 18 starts with that coordinating conjunction for as well, which means that verse 17 is there for a reason. It's there to save us before we get into verse 18. But Paul is going to describe man generally considered. In verse 18, he's condemned, damned, and doomed. But we have a Savior. And Paul wasn't ashamed of that gospel. And that gospel is the power of God for, to every believer because that gospel conve- brings the message of the news and the information that God has put his righteousness upon some. Do you know how he did it? Look at Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul writing in 2 Corinthians. Remember, we use the Bible to interpret the Bible because the Bible is its own best commentary. Because Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 2.13 to compare spiritual things with spiritual. And when he says spiritual things with spiritual, what is he referring to? The words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 19. To wit... God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent him. God decreed what he would accomplish. God was satisfied with the offering of his soul in putting his righteousness upon us and not imputing our sins to us, but legally imputing our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. He made peace. And the preachers of the gospel published that peace. But God made it by Jesus Christ making peace between us and God. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. Not accounting the fact that they have sinned. That's what the word impute means. It means to account. That's a synonym in the Bible for it. It means to reckon. That's a synonym in the Bible for the word impute. God does not impute, account, or reckon that you have sinned because of Jesus Christ, your Savior, in a legal way. We're talking about our legal standing before the tribunal judge of heaven. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. All we do is bring the news of it. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Did David need to be reconciled in this way in Psalm 130? Oh yes, he did. What was he waiting for? Why did he keep saying, I wait, I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting. What was he waiting for? To have this message come to him, not only to his ear, but into his heart to where he would have the joy of his salvation restored to him. And this is what the preaching of the gospel is for. Sinners are condemned needing a Savior like Cornelius, but a Peter comes along and tells them, by him, all that believe are justified from all things. Acts chapter 10. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. God is saying, I'm reconciled. I'm reconciled. Be ye reconciled. David Don't grieve anymore for your sins. You've confessed them and you've repented from them and you have cried unto me for mercy and I'm sending it through a gospel preacher and through the Holy Spirit whereby you can cry, Abba, Father, and the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Well, how did he do it? Huh. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah, it's in verse 21. For he... That is, God hath made him, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin of his own, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There is that righteousness of God. I was a rebellious teenager in the sight of God and before the tribunal throne of divine justice, which is God's throne in heaven. I was a perfect son. I have not been the world's best husband. But before God's tribunal, I am a perfect husband. Because He hath made Jesus Christ to be sin for me. Jesus Christ took my sins. God did not account them to my charge. He did not reckon them or impute them to me. He reckoned, imputed, and accounted them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He died for them, putting them away forever. Then that perfect obedience of Jesus Christ... Fulfilling the law of God in every respect during his life is given to me as the righteousness of God. There it is. God's reconciled us to him. Now he wants us to be reconciled in our hearts and our minds. Now do you understand why Paul wanted to get to Rome? Because you know what? There were, Rome, there were Jews there in that church at Rome that were somewhat ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. Romans 10 tells us that. And Paul said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. As soon as you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, as soon as you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that is the evidence that God elected you before the world began. Christ died for you on the cross of Calvary, paying for all your sins. And the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, proving that you're one of God's elect, made righteous in his sight. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, for therein is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God here is our legal standing of justification before God. The word justification is not used right here, but you're supposed to understand that. Because what does it say in the latter part of this verse? And I'm not to that latter part yet, but what does it say? The what kind of a person shall live by faith? The just shall live by faith. How can a man be just with God? Job and his friends cried out in Job chapter 9, verse 2. Job chapter 25, verse 4. And other places in the book of Job. How can a man be just with God? If God marks iniquities, we're all done. It's over. We're toast. But God was in Christ, reconciling all of us to God by His blood. And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You're supposed to understand that verse 17 is talking about justification. The legal work of Jesus Christ covering all your sins. How are you supposed to understand that? By the phrase, the righteousness of God being unto you and upon you. And the expression that the the elector called by in this passage, the just. How are they just? They're made just by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that just one. And who saved us by sacrificing himself for us. For therein, therein is in the gospel. Within the good news, part of the good news, part of what we preach, is the message that God has made His elect legally righteous. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. All the gospel does is reveal the fact. It brings the righteousness of God to light. It publishes the peace that God has toward His elect because their sins have been paid for, and their sins were not imputed to their account. So when the judge in the black robe, and I say this with all deference to the great God of heaven, when he sits there and looks at the paperwork that is on each of us, our sins are not imputed to us, they were imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he died for them and put them away once for all. Your sins, past, present, and future. To the degree you worry about those sins, or to the degree I worry about those sins, we deny the gospel. That is a fiery dart from the devil to make us worry about those sins. We should confess those sins to God, believing that He forgives them practically as soon as we do that, and go on. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. The gospel reveals how sinners are made righteous before God by Jesus Christ reconciling them to God. The gospel brings this life and immortality, or this righteousness, or this justification to light. It doesn't bring it itself, or them. it brings it to light. It's the word of reconciliation as we've read. It publishes the peace that God has made in Jesus Christ. When was that peace made? Now I want you to think with me. When I have preached to you the little book of Haggai, in chapter 2, it tells us where... God would make peace between himself and sinners. Tell me where? I 2, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, verses 6 through 9, the desire of all nations shall come. I'm avoiding words that would give it away. Yes! What temple? The second temple, called there the latter temple, because the former temple was... Solomon's temple and the latter temple was Zerubbabel's temple and Zerubbabel's temple left this earth in what year? 70 AD. So before 70 AD, God made peace somehow. Oh, did I say the desire of all nations shall come? Oh, that's how he made it. Who was the desire of all nations? The Lord Jesus Christ. Did he say he would fill this latter house with more glory than the former house? How could the latter temple have more glory than Solomon's temple? Because the man Christ Jesus was held in it as a baby and stood in it as a man. And when he died on the cross, what did he do to the veil that was in that second temple? That veil was that thick. That veil was put in place by a team of horses. That veil was 60 feet high. That veil is nothing. Listen, when you think of a veil, you're thinking of some little thing of bride wears that you can see through. The veil of that temple was one enormous piece of material, and it was rent from top to bottom by Almighty God, showing that the way into the holiest of all was made perfectly open by Jesus Christ's death, because peace had been made, and the righteousness of God put upon his elect, so that we can run straight into the holy of holies, which even a priest under the Old Testament couldn't do except once a year, and that with blood. First for his sins, and then for the sins of the people. But that blood has been shed once for all. RIP! Thank you, blessed God. Do you know what, do you know what they think? There's gonna be another temple. And the desire of nations is gonna come. And we're gonna have a peaceful millennium. Because your neighbor's cats aren't gonna fight under your bedroom window anymore. Oh. And we're going to have animal sacrifices again. And Jesus is going to sit on a little throne in Jerusalem, Israel. How pitiful. And the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. We got more zoology being turned upside down right here before my eyes than a lying lying down with a lamb. For the wrath of... Verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. The gospel just tells us about it. The gospel of the good news is how God made us righteous through the work, life, death, and perpetual life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The means of righteousness are not described here, but by reference to God's power in Christ Jesus in the previous verse, you're supposed to be able to figure them out. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, what does it mean when it says from faith to faith? What did Paul mean that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith? The confusion on these words is great and the various opinions are legion. Can we figure it out? Can we know? First of all, the gospel is only profitable to those that believe. Verse 16, right? The gospel is only profitable to those that believe. And when you believe, that means you have faith. Okay. So the gospel is only good to somebody that's got faith. What kind of preachers are the ones that rightly preach the gospel of peace? The ones that have beautiful feet. What word would you use to describe them? Paul said, I have kept the faith because he was a faithful preacher of the gospel. Because it takes a faithful preacher of the gospel to preach the true faith of the gospel. So he was a faithful man preaching it. Was Paul faithful in all his duties? Was Paul the best preacher that we can read about in the New Testament? Okay. Believing preachers. They don't have any shame Are the ones that rightly preach the gospel. They are full of faith. Paul stated his desired intentions to preach the gospel to those that were in Rome. And what does this passage tell us about those that were in Rome? Their what was known throughout the whole world? Their faith was known throughout the whole world. In verse 12, Paul described the potential benefit of getting together with them because of their mutual faith. Now, if you've got mutual faith in the context, just four verses earlier, and it says from faith to faith, are you struggling in your mind with what it means here? I'm not. Look at verse 12. Paul is telling them why he wants to visit them in verse 11. He tells the Romans, I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established, that is, if we want to summarize it this way, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. when a minister who loves the gospel gets with a group of people who love the gospel, it is their mutual faith that comforts each other because they talk about and get excited about the aspects and details of the gospel. For therein is the right to, in the gospel that i 'm going to bring that i 'm not ashamed of that i 'm going to preach to you Roman believers, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from my faith that believes this message to your faith that believes this message, and we are going to have a great time in Rome when I get there. He's going to return to this very same reasoning in chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. In Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, Paul's going to say, the word of faith which we preach, so there's coming from faith, the word of faith which we preach, which is in your mouth and in your heart. What we preach is already in you, so it's from faith to faith. You believe it, we believe it. I'm going to share it to you. I have a spiritual gift. I can tell you a little bit more about it than you can tell me about it. But together, I'm going to establish you, and we're going to comfort each other in the gospel faith. And that's what makes a wonderful relationship. God's gospel reveals justification from faithful preachers to faithful hearers. For how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? And only the faithful ones that are sent actually end up preaching the truth. Enough said. Paul couldn't... Look, if you read the context, and context is our master when it comes to the Bible. When you read the context, faith to faith must mean that Paul's faith in the gospel, he wasn't ashamed of it because he loved it. He had great faith in what God had done for him through Jesus Christ, and he couldn't wait to preach that good message and that joyful information to others that had faith And their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. And so by their mutual faith, they were going to have a wonderful time in the preaching of the gospel. And he was actually going to move their faith just a little bit so that they wouldn't have a place left in it for Jewish legalism. But he doesn't jump on them right off the bat to tell them that. He just says he wants to establish them. He will get very pointed in just a couple of chapters about their Jewish legalistic tendencies. For for therein, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's only faithful ministers that preach the true means of God putting his righteousness upon sinners. And it is only faithful hearers that believe that message of Christ crucified. So it is something that is revealed from faith to faith. God ordained and chose 11 special men and then added Matthias to them and then added Barnabas to them and then added Paul to them and added other preachers and those men full of faith went and preached the word of faith, the word of reconciliation and revealed how men are made righteous before God and it was only the believers, those that had faith, that would accept their message. The others wanted to stone them to death. So it's from faith to faith. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. I can't wait to get to you Roman believers and preach the gospel to believers so that we can rejoice together and be comforted together in our mutual faith around what God has done through us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As it is written, I'm not telling you anything altogether new. If you were familiar with your Old Testaments, he writes this church that did know their Old Testaments because there were Jewish There were Jews among them and Gentile proselytes. As it is written in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, and verse 4 the just shall live by faith. Our life is a life of faith, it doesn't include the works of the law. Our life is a life of faith. We are to believe God's promises, we are to believe God's providence. We are to trust Him. He is going to take care of us. We are to wait on the Lord. Just like Psalm 130 said, let Israel hope in the Lord that is waiting on Him. That is the just living by faith. They believe God's promises that God's going to take care of them in time and eternity and put away all their sins. And he introduces a little bit of the Old Testament in germ form. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 is Habakkuk, Comforting the prophet Habakkuk and Israel that his judgment that was coming on them through Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was definitely going to happen. But the just shall live by his faith, is what it says in Habakkuk 2.4. And here Paul quotes it to point out that the lifestyle, the foundation for our relationship with God, is one of faith. From our standpoint, our working relationship with the God of heaven is to believe His promises, is to trust His Son, is to know that He has saved us. That the very fact our hearts are opened, our eyes are open, our ears are open to believe the Gospel shows that God loves us and we are His justified elect. And the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall get life by faith. It doesn't say they get justified by faith. It just says the just shall live by faith. The lifestyle of a just man is one of faith. He believes God's promises, he believes God's commandments, and he keeps them all. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. He was a righteous man first. God made him righteous. Then... He knew, he heard God's commandment of what kind of a sacrifice he should offer to God. So he brought that sacrifice instead of following his own imagination like Cain did. And God accepted him and his sacrifice and it bore witness to the fact that Abel was a righteous man. The just live by faith. What is a just man? A justified man. What is a justified man? One with the righteousness of God unto and upon him. He is covered in the righteousness of God. That's why he's called a just man. And that just man, how's he supposed to live? How does he get along with God? How does he view God? How does he view himself in God's eyes? By faith. It's all a matter of faith. Because the gospel is only good to those that believe it. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Folks, at Rome, you're already known for your faith, but I want to stir your faith up even more. The just shall live by faith. All God asks of us is to believe what He's done. He's done it all. It's like jumping Jehoshaphat. Stand still and see the salvation of God. Jehoshaphat, I don't want you to fight today. I want you to stand still and sing praises. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And I'll destroy all your enemies. That's what these two verses are saying. I can't wait to get to you Roman believers. The Bible tells us in Habakkuk two 2.4 that we're supposed to live by faith. And I believe this message and I'm not ashamed of it one bit. And I can't wait to preach it to you believers in Rome that believe it as well. We're going to have a wonderful time in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I happen to know a little bit. This is in verses 11 and 12. I happen to know a little bit extra by the grace of God in my life who called me to be his apostle for obedience to the faith among all nations. And I'm going to preach to you like I've preached everywhere else and have fruit in you just like I have elsewhere by establishing you in a more perfect knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did I make that clear enough? That's what Romans 1, 16 and 17 say. That's their sense. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. The just shall live by faith. You brethren that are coming on Wednesday evening... Read, read Hebrews chapter 11 before you come, because we will be referring to Hebrews chapter 11 about an identifying mark of great men, and that is their faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Because of this reference right here, we shall, we shall leap from this little expression, the just shall live by faith, and that is all it says, and that is its meaning. It doesn't tell us how they become just, it doesn't tell us how they become righteous, it just says the just shall live by faith. Because God's elect that have been justified and that have been born again, when they hear the gospel, do you know how they're supposed to live? By faith. Well, how do they do it? They believe the promises of God. They believe the promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They believe every single one of those promises. They believe every precept that God gives them and they go out and do it. And they believe, they believe this. For you melancholies, hear me. They believe that the righteousness of God... Not 90% of the righteousness of God, but the full righteousness of God is unto them and upon them. And the evidence is their faith. And so the fact that they believe on Jesus is sufficient evidence to them that they are righteous in the sight of God. God has not imputed their sins to them. He has imputed instead the righteousness of Jesus Christ to them. So instead, instead of worrying about your sins past, confess them. If you've already confessed them, don't confess them again. For sins present, confess them. For sins future, know that you're able to confess them and that all are put under the blood of Jesus Christ and you are righteous in his sight. The gospel contains this wonderful information. And it tells us in the 17th verse that the gospel doesn't bring it. The gospel just reveals it. And thereby, we have gone down a minority path in our position on the epistle of Romans. We do not believe that the preaching of the gospel is the instrument, the condition, or the means for the power of God in regeneration or for, ju- or for legal justification by Jesus Christ. We believe that both of those operations are operations of grace executed by God according to the good pleasure of his own will. And we know that they were done toward us by our faith in that gospel when it comes to us. Not all men have faith, brethren. Very few have faith. Paul prayed for deliverance from wicked and unreasonable men, and he made this explanation of them in 2 Thessalonians 3.2, For all men have not faith. And you're supposed to add to that faith, virtue, and so forth, the eight things that are listed in 2 Peter chapter 1. And it's the work of faith, and faith without works is dead. So we add a whole lot to faith, but faith is the starting point. And faith is that character trait that the righteous have in their hearts and minds and ears and eyes, That when a man brings the gospel to them and they have faith, they rejoice at what they hear. They fulfill Isaiah 52. They lift up their voice. The watchman lifts up his voice. They lift up their voice. They sing together and rejoice in the wonderful truth conveyed by the gospel. Paul couldn't wait to get to Rome. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And he tells them here in chapter 1. I just want to establish you and I want to have some fruit with you like I've had in other places. And I want to be comforted together with our mutual faith. But you and I both know because we have the whole epistle that he's going to get, he's going to get down on them in chapters 3 through 8 especially about the place and role of the law of Moses in their justification that there is no place for it. And their infatuation with Israel he's going to take care of in chapters 9, 10, 11. That election include the Gentiles and has grafted them in to be equal to the the Jews. He's going to show all that. He doesn't say that in chapter 1. He's just all excited, positive, and upbeat about the glorious news that is in the gospel. And that's what he's bringing. He doesn't have any shame. Are you ashamed of the gospel, brethren? Are you ashamed at all of the gospel? I hope that you're not. I hope that you'll be like Paul. By nature, by your nature, by my nature, and by our practice, we belong in verses 18 through 32. But the redemption of our souls is precious. Amen. And it ceaseth forever. And it's made us righteous in the sight of God. Believers want to be in church because they want to be around other believers. And many Sunday mornings, the expression from Second Peter chapter 1 is used in our prayer closet up here. To be among men of like precious faith. God is the giver of that like precious faith. Amen. We have obtained it now listen to this. We have obtained it through the righteousness of God. The whole world teaches that we obtain the righteousness of God through our faith. Second Peter 1 teaches we obtain faith through the righteousness of God. When God puts his righteousness upon us, it includes giving the gift of faith. Then when a faithful man brings the word of, of the gospel, the word of reconciliation to that man with faith, they both rejoice together. And there were two witnesses to a little exchange that I had with one of our church members between the two services. And those two people know exactly what I'm talking about. And for all those of you that believe and rejoice in this gospel, you are a comfort to me, and I hope I'm a comfort to you. I hope that together we can comfort our souls until the Lord Jesus Christ comes for us. But this is the gospel, and this is Romans 1, 16 and 17. The redemption of our soul is precious, but he has fully redeemed us. And he's made us righteous with the righteousness of God so that we are fully acceptable in his sight. He has not imputed our trespasses against us because they've been put away with the blood of Jesus Christ. We can go out of here free children of God, knowing that there is no claim against us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That's why there's nothing to be laid to their charge. You say, I did lots of things this past week that can be laid to my charge. Not legally, it can't. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If you have things that you have done this past week that are sins in the sight of God, then confess them and forsake them. And he will blot them out practically so that they will not hinder your fellowship. They cannot touch your relationship. You are a son of God or a daughter of God forever. But it can hinder your fellowship. And you know how you get that fellowship restored? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how do we hear all that? By a man coming and tell us, if he does it faithfully. Are there preachers that aren't faithful? Yeah. What happens to their hearers? 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed unto the doctrine. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Continue taking heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in doing those two things. For in doing this... Thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If a man isn't faithful in those two areas of responsibility, and you pray for your pastor and you pray for every God-called man in the world, that he'll be faithful in both of those responsibilities, hearers lose the joy of their salvation because the gospel is not preached faithfully, so it's not coming from faith, even though there may be faith in the pews. Then there are churches that refuse to hear the truth. Like when Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel preached to Israel, there were faithful ministers but not faithful listeners. And so the result is not the same as we can have right here. I hope that our result is one of great joy and a passion and a vision to be like the Apostle Paul, not be ashamed of the gospel. We carry the greatest message the world has ever heard by a factor of infinity. Right. Praise God for his glorious word and what he has told us about transactions that transcend anything that takes place on this planet. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Amen and amen. Amen.